You're listening to the 4-7 Podcast, the podcast where two normal guys interview and reminisce about their favorite Christian artists from the 90s and today. We are super excited today. This is the 4-7 Podcast. I am RJ here with Michael. Uh, we are here today with uh, Andrew Schwab from Project 86, among other things. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining. Uh, you are across the country from us. We were just talking. You're as far away as you can be from us in the same country. And uh, we thank you for joining us. Uh, it's 10 o'clock our time. And so most of our listeners, who is our friends and probably children, are listening tonight. Um, so again, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, Mike, tell, me, tell us a little bit more about our guest. Andrew Schwab is probably the best vocalist I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Your vocal, I'm okay. I'm just going to geek out for a second. So there's probably, in my opinion, there's three amazing vocalists I truly love. You're definitely the top vocalist. Your vocals, they're just so raw and amazing. And I read an interview. You never actually took vocal lessons. You just did it. Well, that's not entirely true. Uh, in the context that I probably meant that answer, I, no, I didn't take any voice lessons to learn how to yell or sing or anything. Um, I'm going to turn off my email here, guys, so I'm not getting alerts. Sorry about that. Uh, no worries. However, uh, about, let's say, I'm going to say about five years into my music career, Sure. I was having issues with losing my voice when I was really? touring. Hmm. Yeah. And so we were signed to a major at the time. So we had some access both in the relationship sense and in the budget sense to some high level voice coaching. And so yeah, I yeah. did, I did go see a voice coach uh, around the time of our third album. Uh, just specifically for help to lose my voice less basically yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but to be honest while i learned a lot about warming up my voice it wasn't until i stopped going to voice lessons and just made the decision to learn the things i needed to learn on my own and really it just happened over time did i improve in the areas that i need to improve upon if that makes sense yeah so let's bring this back a little bit so are you who are your other two who are the other two? I'm curious. <laughs> I would like to know too, but here's a question for you. So you grew up in Pennsylvania. Right. Correct? Yeah. 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 So how did you get to California? Uh, I, let's see, I lived in Northwestern Pennsylvania until high school age, pre-high okay. school age. Sure. Uh, Moved in with my mom. My parents split when I was really young. My mom lived sure. in Maryland. My dad still lives in northwestern Pennsylvania, along with some of my other relatives. And then my family, my mom, uh, her husband, and my two younger brothers, and I moved to Southern California because my parents basically transferred jobs. Uh, okay. Nothing nothing too crazy or exciting. Uh, moved to Southern California when I was 16, I believe, 15 or okay. 60. Ended up in Orange County and then uh, ended up making friends with people who were playing music and in the music scene uh, in college, nice. basically. 
Now, I was reading in an article that your very first album, rock album, that you've ever uh, listened to was Kill Em All by Metallica. Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, did, did that start the journey into... Metal, metal, not rock. Metal. metal. Okay, yeah. now, what was, now, did that start the journey into your music career? Was it at that point you were like, man, I could be the next James Hatfield? I No, I don't think so. It was probably... I would say that the first album that made me want to at least begin thinking about be the guy being the guy on stage was License to Ill by the Beastie Boys. That was around sixth grade, I believe. Uh, really? And it wasn't. It wasn't. I want to be the Beastie Boys. It was just such a deep connection to their persona and the music that it inspired me in such a way that like. I just wanted to be as close to whatever they were doing as I could be. Now, as time went on and I got a little older, I got more and more in, became more and more into music. I would say, I, I, I don't remember a point in time or an artist where I said, I want to be on the stage, but it became more and more of an, a reality for me throughout junior high. And then I would say my freshman year of high school was when I actually started trying to make my own music. Nice. Because like, I was also reading that your first album you ever owned was Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. That was a 45 record. Yeah, that, like seriously, like that's got Metallica. That was purchased for me as a, as a gift. Yeah. Now, did your parents were they into music? Did that is that how you kind of got into your musical taste? Yeah. So <clears throat> my mom and my stepdad growing up were the big sure. musical proponents, and my stepdad was actually a musician. And so really? I would say if it wasn't for being exposed to that world, I probably would never have thought that it was a possibility or a reality. Um, but this is a funny piece of, of, I don't know, trivia or a funny story. So when I moved in with my mom, they rented out one of the rooms in their house to the sound guy for my stepdad's band. Nice. And so he had a ton of gear there at the house, like literally across the hallway from me. So I would go knock on his door and say, can I borrow a microphone? Can I borrow that uh, mixer? Can I borrow, you know, and I would just yeah, figure yeah, yeah. stuff out, you know, by borrowing gear from my, my neighbor across the hall. <laughs> Otherwise, if I didn't have access to that, I probably wouldn't have been able to make some really bad hip hop demos <laughs> in ninth grade. So with Project 86, how did that start? I know you've probably told this story a hundred times before, but but how did you get into it? What was the what was the point of starting Project 86 for you? So the year was 1994. Sure. And what lit the fire in me to do something that was hard, heavier, harder, um, metal, rock, hardcore, whatever you want to call it, was I, I started going to shows. I had a bunch of friends who were involved in like the underground scene in Southern California. And I remember going to shows and thinking to myself, you know, I want to do that. I want to do that. Uh, and I think I could, I could do it well. And so I started networking within that scene to meet people. And it took me a couple of years to recruit the right guys line up and we had some lineup changes in the early days uh but i i grew up listening to hip-hop 
I grew up listening to metal, anything that was a little bit more extreme in terms of in terms of emotion. And so I wanted to play heavy music. And I think to say that back then I had some sort of grandiose vision or goal in mind in terms of the band would probably be inaccurate. I, I didn't have a ton of goals in mind other than I just wanted to play and I wanted to play music that yeah. that I loved and I wanted to play with guys who wanted to play the same kind of music and play shows and write me write songs and I think if there was a goal in the beginning it was just to write and record an album of our own material that was kind of the short and long-term goal and I don't think there was ever any thought or discussion beyond that sure. uh, I think in the back of my mind was if we can make music that I'm happy with that we're happy with that we're stoked on, that we feel is good, that maybe other people will like it too. Well, it's funny because, like, I was uh, listening to, it was a Billy Power. He used to be a, one of the people from Tooth and Nail. Uh, he has a podcast, and Ethan Luck was on it. And is it true? Ethan said that on the podcast, Ethan said he wouldn't, Andrew would never admit this, but um, you told did you, did you tell Ethan you wanted to start a Christian version of Rage Against the Machine or something like that? Probably something to that effect. I mean, yeah. I loved Rage Against the Machine. Um, they were a great. Those that that's the one band I broke up I way loved too early. that band back in the day, and yeah, they were definitely uh, a huge influence on me personally. Zach Delarocha's vocal, <clears throat> you know, I wouldn't say his approach to writing lyrics lines yeah. up with with mine. I would say I, I read it. I, I write from a different standpoint. It's definitely, I definitely don't write political yeah. um, lyrics. That's never yeah. been my thing. Uh, but as far as like the, the merger of like rock and rap and where we sat in history at that point in time, I would say they were definitely my biggest influence, at least in the very beginning. Now, this is a piece of trivia that I shared on my podcast. I actually yeah. did admit that Rage Against the Machine was a huge early influence, and I think you can hear it on our first record, especially yeah. on our first demo. But the the biggest thing that I learned in the in the early days of Project Eighty Six was okay. Everybody brings their influences to sure. the table when you start the band, and because it was my band, and they were such a huge influence for me, it couldn't help but sound like that in the very beginning. Sure. It wasn't until we recorded a demo and I got a little bit of feedback and we received feedback from people that I realized, oh, wow, we do kind of sound like like that, that the goal changed. Okay. And and immediately it was, OK, we need to have our own sound. We can't sound like another band or a Christian version of this band or that band. So now, while Ethan was around in those early days, he wasn't around for the really uh I would say that the intentional decision-making that went into project 86, having its own sound, which is, sure. I think one of the things that's defined the band over the years, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I really wanted to have a unique voice and I really wanted the band to have a unique sound. And I think over the years, that's kind of been something that's attached to the name. Absolutely. You're so Ethan was yeah. trying to, trying to diss me that's right. on that, but you should tell him to say it to my face because i already addressed that <laughs> what 
Yeah, so, I gotta tell I you, I don't have any problems with him saying that. You, uh, the first two albums, I would say, you just nailed it. Your voice and the sound, even today's album, they're just so they're different than what you usually hear on the radio. The vocals were so different. I remember when, um, the very one of the first pictures I saw of you, you had the beanie on, the, the Adidas shirt, the rocking the Adidas shirt. And when I heard the, the self titled album and the song Run, I was instantly, instantly hooked on Project 86. And then I saw you guys at Soul Fest in probably 97. Soul Fest was uh, mm. over in New Hampshire. They, they still have it nowadays, but this is back in the 90s. You said you had the fro. You had like the huge. That would have been show. that would have been ninety nine. Ninety nine, okay. Yeah. You guys put on one amazing show. You guys are you Appreciate guys it. absolutely fantastic. So, let's talk about how you got signed. How did you get from the idea of starting a band to talking to Brendan Neville and get onto Beck Records? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who that guy is. So, Brendan Neville? I'm really confused. Brendan Neville. Oh my God, I just peed my pants. I like, I like that you're mispronouncing his name. We how do you? That. How do you? How do you pronounce it? Brandon Ebel. 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 Uh, rhymes rhymes with evil. <laughs> if you if you watch any of our podcasts, he doesn't get my name right most of the time. So, That's okay. And, and we're friends, so yeah. it, it works out. That's cool. Um, so, not a dramatic story. Uh, we were friends personally with a lot of the bands that were on that label. And in hindsight, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I think if we had toured a little while, we probably would have ended up signing to a different label. But because we had so many friends on that label, it really made the most sense. It was a very natural sort of uh, introduction and... Uh, we were there was there were good words being put in for for the band for Project Eighty Six with Tooth and Nail Records because you know there were bands that were already successful and the label kind of pulling for us. So the funny story about that was there was no one on the Tooth and Nail staff that wanted to sign Project Eighty Six. Really? Well, yeah, because Project Eighty Six was never it was never. Uh, a band that was meant to appeal to scene kids, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it was intentionally kind of more of, for lack of a better way to put it, a mainstream approach, right? Okay. So I think to the staff at Tooth and Nail, we were, we didn't have enough cred. You know what I mean? We were dorky or whatever. Yeah. And I don't say we, me. I was the one who was intentionally not buying into the scene of tooth and nail. And I think over the years, that was always not a point of contention, but that was the thing that made project 86 unique in the history of, of tooth and nail is we found success doing a style of music or a sound or an approach that was a little bit counterintuitive to a lot of the bands that were on that label. And yet, especially on Drawing Black Lines, found some success inside of that scene, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. we almost set out to define or to defy what sort of defined that scene, which was like a mentality, a scene mentality. 
And it still ended up working inside of that. But um, that's why I say in hindsight, maybe tooth and nail wasn't the best fit for us only because the ethic, the mentality was a little bit different than a lot of the other bands sure. uh, that came out of that scene. So early on, when when you were touring, you're, you're on Beck, you're on Tooth and Nail, but you're also touring with some really large bands and and uh, bands that are not Tooth and Nail. I mean, you were traveling with POD, uh, even I think Lincoln Park at some point. Um, you know, what was it like traveling with with bands like that um, while being on maybe Beck or Tooth and Nail um, records? How was that for you? So going into our second album. The band was licensed to Atlantic, which was mm -hmm. always, it was always the goal of the band to not just play in the faith-based market, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. um, or at least very early on, that became a goal, is that we, did, look, if we're going to go somewhere with this thing professionally, let's let's do it in, the, in, in a way that it appeals to a broader audience, not just people that necessarily personally agree with our worldview or our belief system so going into after recording our second album really some some new doors opened up uh in in the mainstream world i guess if for lack of a better way to put it uh there were a few labels that were interested in us atlantic was one of them uh and we ended up because of a pre-existing relationship between our previous label and Atlantic, that seemed to make the most sense uh, was to license the album, uh, which wasn't necessarily our decision, but we ended up being on Atlantic in the mainstream and then Tooth and Nail BC on the, the, the Christian side of things. Uh, and so right when that happened, uh, or shortly thereafter, we started, you know, uh, we started getting more opportunities to tour with... Uh, with mainstream artists. And I, I do remember the tour with, with uh, uh, Lincoln Park and uh, POD was the headlining act on that tour. And the funny thing was, Lincoln Park was the opening act and we were the second of four bands. So they were opening for us technically. Wow. And it was right, they joined the tour right before their first album, album Hybrid Theory, dropped. So they were still a relatively unknown band, but they were they were receiving a lot of airplay on the radio. So when their album dropped in the middle of that tour, they were selling a ton of records out the gate by the end of the tour. I think they were the biggest band on the tour or they were very fast becoming yeah. one of the bigger bands on the tour or the biggest band on the tour. At any rate, I remember a couple of funny stories about the tour. I remember at one point after their album dropped, their manager contacted our manager basically saying, hey, we're bigger than Project 86, we need to be headlining. And our manager said, no, 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 you guys agreed to be the opening slot, so you're the opening slot. But I remember watching their fan base grow from city to city every day. It was getting bigger and bigger. And we're like, shoot, these guys are going to be, they're going to be huge. And they did. They ended up selling over 10 million copies of that record. Probably way more than that. Yeah. Uh, the other funny story was, I remember they didn't start that tour on the very first date. They jumped on a week or two into it. And so I remember when they showed up to the tour, their bus showed up to the tour. I think I woke up late one morning and, 
and rolled out of our bus and I saw their bus sitting outside the venue and I walked up to their bus and the door opened to their bus and the guy jumped off and I immediately recognized him. He was actually one of my, I had a group of friends in high school that I was really close to. And he was one of the younger brothers of that small group of friends. And so I knew this guy really well and had spent a ton of time at his house over the years. And we all ran with the same circle in high school. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing here, man? So I play bass for this band. And I was like, no way. So it was really funny that um, <laughs> we had a pre-existing relationship in high school, actually. We have a uh, Ben McRae. I think you know Ben McRae from Rhode mm -hmm. Island. He says, hello, and what's, what's up, up Ben? Rob? <laughs> so I have a question for you. Drawing Black Lines was an incredibly high-energy album, and it's actually one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, you got signed Thank to you. You, it was just fantastic, and you got signed to Atlantic. Um, were you surprised because you were in the whole brand new genre of a new metal scene? How was it being in that new metal scene with like Corn, Limbiscuit, Head PE, Lincoln Park? Did you expect the album to go farther than it did? There's a lot to those questions. Um, I think we were not anticipating the response that we received when we recorded that album. We didn't yeah. know what we had going into it. We were just having fun. Uh, there were four band members and we all were just enjoying uh collaborating together being a band together like enjoying our time together working with a producer that we really respected mm -hmm. we just we did that album very quickly there wasn't a lot of uh there wasn't a lot of overthinking we just went in and enjoyed making heavy music and the four guys that made that record were all on the same page creatively we all wanted to do the same thing we wanted to write a dark uh but not negative uh heavy record that would translate well to the live setting and when we were finished mixing the record and we started showing it to people we got a very strong response from everyone that we showed it to and we started looking at one another going wow we did something really special here this record's like it's not just special to us it's going to be special to other people and so I think that was a little bit of a shock initially um, and once we sort of realized what we had in the record, then it was like, okay, we need to be on the road. We need mm. to be supporting this. You know, they, the expectations got bigger. Yeah. And so uh, I think there was a, a moment in time where we looked at one another and said, well, we're a real band. We made a real record. We're good. Yeah. We should be out there doing this thing with all of the heavy hitters, you know, in, in heavy music. So, yeah, new metal was still on the front end of kind of becoming a thing, which was short-lived and became went, went from being kind of cool to becoming very uncool. Uh, thanks, thanks to, to Fred, thanks to Fred Durst. Thanks to Limp Biscuit and yes! bands like that. So, so it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so after that, um, you part ways with Atlantic uh, at some point, and you head back uh, to Tooth and Nail. Uh, for the release of later albums like uh, Songs to Burn Your Bridges By uh, and The Rest Will Follow. What was that transition like for you? Um, kind of balancing both having Atlantic and Tooth and Nail and Beck and now kind of taking a step back and going a little bit more uh, full into Tooth and Nail. 
actually, before you answer that question, because there's a, there's something else besides that, that I need to know. So you you released the, the follow up album to um, Drawing Black Lines. It was a very different album. It was a concept album, and if I remember correctly, you personally were not. That's not the album you wanted to release. You wanted to re- release something that was more hard and more heavy, but the but the labels were pushing you for more of a poppier hard rock sound. What happened? So there's a lot to that. And and I've talked about this for so many years now, but the more the more distance I get from that era, the more perspective I get. Again, uh, yeah. it's 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the long and short of it is this. So we had signed a six record deal initially with Tooth and Nail. Yeah. And Drawn Black Lines uh, really introduced us to a larger world. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was grossly underexposed. We didn't tour a lot on that album. We really didn't have uh, any support from a real management company that believed in us or was pushing us. Um, it was just a really strange thing i think if it had been given the attention that it probably warranted and we were on the road doing more than just a couple of tours we probably would have sold a quarter of a million records or more ended up selling about half of that um so going into our third record basically our team which involved our attorney and our business people managers etc basically said you know we're we would like to get you bought out of your deal with tooth and nail and um, make you exclusively on atlantic which eventually did happen but the leverage in that situation uh from atlantic was we're going to buy you out of your deal with tooth and nail but we need you to give us singles we need you to give us big songs that are going that are going to translate to radio and sell a million records, blah, blah, blah. So there was this pressure from the beginning after Drawing Black Lines to deliver a more commercially viable release. And P.O.D., who was also on Atlantic, and I personally never wanted to sign to the same label as P.O.D., just because we were a different band, but because we had toured with them and there was an association there and we sort of came out of the same... uh, family of bands or the same market if you will uh there was a template that they had created that we were being automatically plugged into uh the problem was we totally come from a different background different you know it's just a different influence different uh perspective on music everything different so you can't apply one band's experience to another and expect the same situation to occur, right? And so I didn't ever view Project 86 to be this like pop band or a, a pop mm-hmm. rock band or whatever. Um, I think we have always been at our strongest or this entity has been at, at its strongest when the music's at its darkest, at its mm-hmm. most aggressive. I agree. Um, and I think that was lost in writing Truthless Heroes, which was our third album. Um, basically I was the only one in our entire family of people, band members and extended family of business people who said, no, let's, let's write another album in that vein of drawing black lines. Mm -hmm. 
um, we had band members that were saying, well, we either need to, you know, go platinum or, you know, the band needs to break up kind of thing. That was the mentality is, you know, let's, let's give Atlantic records what they want. Let's write a more commercially viable record. Um, and if it doesn't work, well, we gave it a big shot. I mean, that was just totally the opposite of why I started this band. I, yeah, wanted, yeah, yeah. I wanted to do more of what we did on Drawing Black Lines, maybe just a little bit more evolved away from the new metal thing. But um, we always existed on the fringes of new metal anyways. Yeah. Um, so what came out was, was Truthless Heroes. And I think the concept album was my way of controlling what I could control inside of it. It's like, okay, I, I'm losing control of kind of the direction of this thing. So let me just go deeper into this like story I want to tell kind of thing. I, I think in hindsight, if we had just released Spy Hunter as the first track on Truthless Heroes, it would have been all good. But mm -hmm. we, we recorded Spy Hunter and for some reason it didn't make the album. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know whether that was my decision or someone else's, but it was an old hat because we wrote that record basically, or I'm sorry, we wrote that song basically on the Drawing Black Lines album cycle after we released that album. And then we sort of forgot about that song. And uh, because we were so focused on writing hits, uh, I don't think we, we considered putting that song first on the record. But if I had to do it over again, that would be track one on Truthless Heroes, our third release. And I think our core fan base would have responded really well to that. Um, and probably if a little bit different of a song order that would have made the album a little bit more aggressive. And then I think we probably, the story would have been a little bit different, but we left Atlantic. We were dropped from Atlantic after our third record because uh, it didn't go platinum, you know, mm -hmm. which was the goal. Uh, we sold far less than that. So, so I'm glad that we kind of brought that up because uh, my question now makes a little bit more sense. So you're, you're gone from Atlantic at this point, you're kind of backing into tooth and nail again. How did that make you feel? Is there a relief that you no longer have to um, kind of exist for somebody else and kind of do your own thing again? Or was it disappointment? What, what was the feeling at that point? It was a little of both. I mean, obviously you're disappointed when you're not on the major anymore because there's still something exciting about being on a major label you know, and being a part of that system, there's an air of legitimacy, there's exposure to, you know, bigger artists, etc. Coming back to Tooth and Nail, um, it was something that I didn't personally want to do. It was more of something that made sense from a logistical standpoint. Hmm. Um, and we, you know, we wanted to keep, I wanted to keep making records. So, Hey, we had success previously on this label. You know, we we sort of graduated, if you will, into something else and then came back to it. Um, I think I think it was more just about the music, though, at the end of the day. Uh, I don't think the band is defined by what label we were on. We're more defined by the music that was being written. So I see that that aspect of our career is yeah the labels at that time were somewhat responsible for creating marketing opportunities for the band but they in no way defined what the band was at the time if that makes sense so it was a little little bit of disappointment with leaving atlantic but there was also um kind of a comfort factor with going back to where we had come from and getting back to your roots kind of thing 
Um, there were certain things about being a part of the major label system, obviously, you know, the idea of playing the radio and uh, commercial hit game that wasn't, that wasn't exactly where I wanted the band to be that letting go of that was definitely not a disappointment. So it was a mixed bag. If that makes so, sense. So going through all these things, the ups and the downs and going to the secular labels or the, to the more to the Christian label, how did that affect your faith? You know, did it have an effect on your faith? Did it bring you down or did it make it stronger? Like what, what was going on in your mind as you were kind of being kicked around by people saying, I want you to do this, but you have to do this. And it's like, give me a break. Yeah. I think it's very easy, especially if you achieve any measure of success uh, in really any entertainment field to start getting bogged down by the business side of things. Right. Mm -hmm. So didn't none of us started playing music and I didn't want to start a band to make money, but eventually you become an adult and you start going, okay, I need to be able to play, pay my bills yeah. and be, be a responsible human being uh, and not a child, you know, yeah. inside of it. So there is a business element that you have to be responsible with that starts coming into the foreground and the more successful you become, the more, of a team you assemble, the more everybody's getting a piece of the pie, blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares about that stuff if you're a music fan, but it's a reality of the, the music industry, just as the salary cap is a part of professional sports, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So people tune in to watch an NFL game, not because they care about what so-and-so is making or what their contract situation is, blah, 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 but because they enjoy football, right? The music fan. Yeah listens to a band not because of xyz with their business but because they enjoy the music but behind the scenes it's a reality so yeah i think the the biggest challenge was the disillusionment that you begin to experience when you approach something from a wide-eyed perspective you have an idealistic childlike uh, approach to why you're doing what you're doing and then as it becomes more and more apparent that this is a business and I'm a part of that, uh, that's where things get challenging. And I think for me during that era of the band, that was the hardest thing that I dealt with. And there were days where I had a hard time sleeping and, you know, I really went through a really dark season, a hard season where I'm like, where are you? Uh because I didn't really understand the things that were going on around us. Now, again, hindsight, was I taken care of? Was I provided for, you know, was God always there? Of course, man. But could I see it at that time? Not always, but you know, I was the one who was getting distracted by all of these other cares, et cetera, in the business of it. But yeah, that's where a lot of artists tend to struggle is when you start to achieve a measure of success, uh, there's a lot of distractions and there's a lot of disillusionment that comes along and how you respond to that kind of de defines your character moving forward. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, I have a, my own business and it's a pretty successful business. And, you know, having your own business is kind of like having a band, you know, um, there's the business aspect, there's the fun aspect. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's definitely differences, but, Whenever you have or whenever you have levels of success, you get almost that feeling of I'm invincible. Nothing can of nothing, yeah, nothing can bring me down. But then when you get brought down, it's like, well, God, why'd you do why'd you let that happen? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I feel like yeah. 
And there's nothing more invincible feeling than standing on a stage in yeah. front of lots of people. Chanting your name. Or singing the lyrics that you wrote yeah. or whatever. Like, that is uh, an extremely powerful drug. And it can make you feel totally invincible. It's totally false, of course, but yeah. the feeling is real. Yeah. I personally, I'll be honest with you, there's a reason why God has me as a commercial photographer in the small state of Rhode Island because if I ever had any bit of success, my head could not fit out that door and I would be the biggest idiot to people because I would just... But that's be- a human condition thing. Yeah. That's what, that's what a lot of people don't realize. Um, you see this all the time with you know, the way that we obsess over celebrities, right? Um, yes. That drives me nuts. And I just watched a, that HBO documentary on Tiger Woods, kind of the unsolicited documentary on Tiger Woods the other day. And I'm thinking to myself the entire time I'm watching, especially the second part of it, I'm going, all he did was act like a human being inside mm-hmm. of what he had been given and who yep. he was shaped to be. And yet this guy who was set up to be more than he was and then torn down when he made mistakes inside of that um, and was just totally, you know, vilified for, for the things that he did wrong. All he did was display in very vivid fashion the human condition. Mm-hmm. So how would you or I respond if we were Tiger Woods and have gone through the things that he went through, um, good and bad, probably in similar fashion? I actually agree with you because whenever I see people complain about whatever, whether it be not so not not in politics, but I'm saying it whether it be about politics or about art um, artists or anybody who fails, mm-hmm. I say to myself, "What the crap would you do in that situation? You have no idea because you." It's hard to remember that though. Absolutely, I agree. For any I, of us, for me too, obviously. Yeah, so. You're at the point now, you know, you're back on tooth and nail. Um, cause you, but you also had a gap where you were not on tooth and nail. You wanted to go the independent route because you um, released your fourth album independently and then brought it back onto tooth and nail. Why did you, why did you guys want to go that independent route first for a while? I think we were just fed up with dealing with the whole record label, everything because uh, it was, it was difficult uh, from, I would say, about 2000 to 2003, yeah. dealing with all of the internal politics of the different record labels, etc. So, yeah, we recorded the album independently and then started shopping it around. Mm-hmm. I didn't anticipate re-signing the Tooth and Nail at all. In fact, I wanted, I wanted to avoid it, but... Um, the various business people that we were working with at the time was like, you know, this is probably going to be the smartest move for you guys from just a career standpoint. And so that's why we made that decision. So the question was though, after that, or did I answer your question? No, I I think you answered it. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I, I, I had a question too. I, I actually came into Project 86 a little later uh, than Mike did. Um, there were these group of albums, and it's funny because everybody we've had on this podcast has appeared on these albums. Was the X albums, uh, the the Christian rock X albums that came out every year, and you guys run X 2005 uh, with um, the Spy Hunter, 
And mm. so that was the first time I'd heard you guys. You were alongside some of my, you know, band Seventh Such Day Summer, Under Oath, Cutlass, Sanctus Real. A, a, just a, a weird combination of bands. KJ52, John Rubin was on there. Um, and then to hear the Spy Hunter on there, um, it just kind of like blew me away. Because again, it, you, you have all these bands like Cutlass on there, which I love, but it's not Project 86 for sure. Um, and so I start hearing these these songs. I got into Spoken that way too, which was which was a whole nother uh, amazing, like really hard uh, band. Um, I say that because I came in a little later. I went back, listened to the stuff, and you guys released a couple of albums around this time. We just talked about songs to burn your bridges by, and then the rest will follow comes out. Um, there was a little bit of a change there too. Um, you guys even created, I think, a DVD about the making of that. Um, and people have said that it kind of marked a change for you guys. Uh, one of the um, uh, things that I had read was that you guys kind of felt humbled by your past experiences, um, and there was a bit of a change. Um, can you tell me about the difference there with And the Rest Will Follow? What was it like making that album? I think sonically, you know, album five, you really start when you make that many albums, you know, and we've made 10. You really need to start reinventing creatively. You can't keep writing the same types of songs over and over and over again. And so one of the things that I think made the po made it possible for the band to have longevity is you've got a pretty big um, pretty big range in terms of emotion and sonics and diversity between the different types of songs that developed over time and i think that was the first time we really started pushing the boundaries on writing you know we had like more mellow songs or more melodic songs and then mm -hmm. heavier heavier songs you know, faster songs or sort of other you know we started really pushing the boundaries on that i also tried to start diversifying what what i was doing vocally pushing myself to sing more rather than just yelling on every single song um and i think that was the first album where i started coming into that vocally. Um, the other thing that started happening, and really it started happening after Drawing Black Lines, our second record, is that guys, certain guys in the band just didn't want to make as heavy of music anymore. Um, I've always been a pretty big heavy music guy. I want to go heavier and darker on every album. But uh, you had guys in the band that were pulling in different directions. And so you end up meeting in the middle in terms of where the sound goes. And so there, there were greater and greater degrees of compromise happening, especially on my end. Uh, you get into album five, album six, that type of thing. I have, a, I have someone who has a question. Um, here we go here. Rob Canavan, who's a huge, I know this guy personally, he loves, loves Project Sex. He says, during did the dark season come out in your songwriting? Uh, yeah, inevitably. Uh, especially with the lyrics I, I think Truthless Heroes is in some senses kind of a tragic take <laughs> on, on experience uh, I just was coming from a little bit more of an uncertain place there's a lot of certainty on Drawing Black Lines and on yeah. the first record and I would say that Truthless Heroes is like that transformation from childhood to adulthood where it's like you think you know everything and then you realize you don't and so there's a lot of uncertainty on on truthless heroes the third record see with me i thought i knew everything and then i had a kid and i'm like oh crap i know nothing 
Yeah. Hey. The further I go, the more I realize I don't know anything. Hey, Ben McCray says Stein themes will always be the plutonium, whatever that word is, Project 86 track. The what? I don't even know what that word is. Ultimate. Oh, ultimate Project 86 track. You got a typo in there. Stein's theme will always be the ultimate Project 86 track from Ben McRae. Yeah, I mean, so, I think that's a good one. That's one of my favorite all-time tracks. So honestly, we've only gone through uh, uh, five or six albums. You have plenty more to talk about after that, but we are coming up on, on the end here. We don't want to keep you all night. Um, but what are you doing uh, recently? How, how's your year been? I know that the pandemic has hit everybody pretty hard, um, but what have you been up to lately? And is there anything... Uh, coming up uh, down the the bend that you want to talk about? We just celebrated the 20-year anniversary of our second album, Drawing Black Lines, which, man, I'm old. (laughs) But uh, we did a live stream performance, and it really was an event. And we did this in Nashville. And we did two nights of performance. We did one night that was more of a VIP, unplugged, Uh, performance and then the second night we really went all out with production and I was really happy with how the whole thing turned out although it 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 almost killed me it was so much work and everybody involved with that thing worked so hard and gave gave their best effort it just it was so much fun man Uh, I'm hoping that we have another opportunity soon and we're working on this to do another live stream uh, revolving around anniversary type things i'll leave it at that because we haven't announced anything yet um as far as working on new new music that has been happening for some time uh and we'll have some announcements regarding that as well soon once the pandemic hit uh it really just turned everything on its head and and so for me for six months or more it was like okay when is this going to end so we can get back to doing stuff and then it's oh this isn't going to end for a while so let's make some alternate plans and then you have to set it up etc so well i'm really glad that you guys you are know. continuing to do things the live stream was a, a huge success from what i've been reading um and we even have some people that are listening now that that uh supported the live stream so that was really cool a lot Thanks, of bands that i'm really into are doing the live stream thing and i love it emory just it was really fun today um yeah it it looked it looked really cool um Thanks. i'm really glad that you guys are are still thriving it's been what is it uh 9606 16 25 years 25 years 25 years year. so you guys Holy are crap. still around doing your thing um, started the band when i was eight <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, how was it josiah and joey from uh disciples speak very highly of you by the way we had them on the uh oh, that's podcast a couple days ago panic room fantastic nice by the way yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to do. With you that. had everything to do with that song. Fantastic. That's their <laughs> song. They just—I was lucky enough to have, that they asked me. Well, to your be a part your of. vocals really made that song just shine. It's fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you again for taking your time to be with us here today. Of course. Hopefully in the future, if you're still bored and want to hang with us, we can finish <laughs> a little bit. Never more. bored. Never <laughs> bored. And this isn't boring. Oh no, we're not boring. We're you amazing, know what? But... one of my uh, one of my isms. Okay, the only the only type of people that use the word bored are boring people. <laughs> RJ's boring. <laughs> I, hey, I have two podcasts. I think that makes me 
that makes me bored but we'll we'll see you're not bored or boring you guys are great well we appreciate you guys you coming out uh we're gonna end the live uh part of our uh, broadcast so if you don't mind just hanging on a few more seconds but thank you guys at home for joining us uh for this very special live episode of the four seven podcast i'm rj this is mike and this is andrew from project 86 but thank you again uh and you have a good night <laughs>